0: We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for the last few months, and we're going to continue to be in the Sermon on the Mount, except for interruptions that we might have from time to time. Last week, we were talking about unforgiveness, and we identified unforgiveness as one of the main blockages to kingdom. It's one of those sine qua non, right, you know, without which none. With unforgiveness, it is impossible to be in kingdom, just literally impossible. The conditions that create unforgiveness in us, the the inability to set ourselves free, which is what we said forgiveness means in the original language. It means to be set free. To be set free is to be forgiven. To be forgiven is to be set free. The only person and the only power in heaven or on earth that can set us free is ourselves. The conditions of our release have always been present. God never withholds forgiveness. He is forgiveness. And so that forgiveness is always there for the taking, but until we actually let go of the victimhood, let go of the resentment, let go of the fixation on the past, we can't avail ourselves of God's grace that is right here and right now. And so that's the, the point of unforgiveness. It shelves us off from the kingdom that is now. It shelves us off from being able to even apprehend that such a thing as kingdom or good news exists. And Jesus worked really hard to try to redefine and to reestablish forgiveness in the people's mind, both religiously and secularly, because both their culture and the teachings of the Pharisees ran in the other direction. Then he goes right from unforgiveness into this idea of, if you forgive your brother, then your father in heaven will forgive you. But if you don't forgive your brother, then neither will your father in heaven forgive you. And so we're faced with Jesus seeming to speak in complete contradiction to what he has been saying before about the unconditional nature of his father's love, the lack of any prerequisite to father's presence and forgiveness. And all of his stories from the prodigal son on and his teachings directly contradict that. He talked about forgiveness as being absolutely unlimited. You never stopped forgiving. So why does the Father forgive forgiveness if you don't perform as you're supposed to perform? Does that mean that the Father is withholding forgiveness? And, of course, the answer is no. Right back to what we said before. Which the question that Jesus is answering here in that phrase that seems so difficult for us is who can really set us free? We are the only ones who can set us free. God has already made his choice for forgiveness. God is forgiveness. How are we going to respond? Will we respond? And so what we find out is that forgiveness is not passive. It can't be passive. We can't be waiting on God to give us something that he's already given us, that we already possess freely for ourselves. God always has and already is in that state of having acted for us on our behalf. What Jesus is saying, it's our turn. The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. First thing he says in Mark, it's coming out party, Mark one fifteen. the waiting is over. The kingdom is here. He's trying to get that across to us over and over and over again because it's so tempting for us to go passive, isn't it? I mean, think about it. It's built into our view of an omnipotent God, a God who is all-powerful. What does that leave for us to do? If God is all-powerful, if God is the actor in everything, then what is there left for us to do? It's so easy when we think of God that way for us to just fall into a passive sort of role. God is going to do everything for us. We just have to show up believing the right things and not break any rules, basically. But it's a passive, it's a reactive way of living our spiritual lives. And it's built also into our concept of original sin, isn't it? I mean, if we're born this way, if we're born impossibly separated from our God, if we're born in such a state that nothing that we can do can rectify that situation, except to believe on Jesus in the right way and have him do all the work, have him do the covering, have him do the redemption and salvation. Once again, that puts us back into a passive situation, passively accepting. But what is it that we're actually doing? Because see, Jesus is teaching us a very different way of spiritual life a very different way of approaching the Father, a very different way of entering kingdom, as he would say it metaphorically. It's an active way, never passive, energetic and active, and partnering with God. Now there's a concept that might start to spin your head a little bit. Actually partnering with God. Jesus talks about an abundant life that he came us to bring. Not just life, but abundant life. Lived affirmatively, Actually choosing, not waiting for God to act, but choosing the action that is already there. If you think about it, passivity is the way of the victim. Passivity is the way of the victim mentality that many of us develop because of the hurts and traumas that we have faced in life. But then that mentality never leaves us. It gets baked down into our core beliefs. It gets baked down into that subconscious part of ourselves. And then it becomes a way of life that passivity is built into. Jesus is anything but a victim. Just recall any story of his life. He's anything but a victim. And he's anything but passive. Did you know that victim mentality and Passive aggressiveness go hand in hand, that one is basically an expression of the other. This is something we sometimes don't think about. But passive aggressive tendencies and the passive attitude toward life is part of the victim mentality. Here's a little article, Are You a Victim of the Victim Syndrome? And the author writes, people with a victim mentality are passive aggressive in their interactions with others. The passive aggressive style is very subtle, indirect or behind the scenes way of getting what people want and expressing anger without openly acknowledging it or directly confronting the source of it. People who feel powerless usually resort to the passive aggressive mode because they have difficulty acknowledging their anger directly given the way they feel about themselves. They seem superficially compliant to others' needs but are expert in passive resistance We need to talk about that for a second, because we use powerless in the first first of the 12 steps. This idea that we are powerless over some of these overwhelming behavioral patterns in our lives. But if we're powerless, and we are all powerless over more than we would like to admit in life, all right, that's not the victim's problem. It's not powerlessness. A true victim is choiceless, and that's different. We can all admit that we are powerless over certain things, but that doesn't mean that we don't have choices. We have choices and ways that we can act even if we're powerless to directly affect the root of our problem. We can choose, and we can choose to hitch our wagon to the power that's greater than ourselves that can and will restore our lives to sanity. That's the choice that we can make, and we can always make that choice. But a victim doesn't believe that he or she has that choice to make. A true victim is without choice. Things happen to the victim, and they have no choice. But in the next moment, they have a choice again, typically. But if you don't pick up that choice, then you develop the victim mentality. And that sense of choice goes away. When we believe we have no choice in life, then we will resort to passive-aggressive tactics. We always have a choice to act, but if we don't believe we do, then these common traits of passive-aggressiveness will start to rear their ugly heads. Ever thought about the traits of passive-aggressiveness? Here's a few of them. A passive-aggressive person does not express hostility or anger openly, that is, They express it instead maybe by leaving notes. (laughs) A passive-aggressive way of doing it, right? They're ambiguous. They love ambiguity. They're a master of mixed messages and fence-sitting to retain their options, to retain control. They will blame others. They will complain. They can't take responsibility for their own failings. They are chronically late, chronically forgetting things. That way they stay, again, in control of a situation. They fear authority, but they also fear competition, feeling inadequate. They can either be the wimp or they can be the tyrant. There's a fear of dependency, unsure of their own autonomy, their own ability, obviously, to act and to choose. And so they try to control what they can. There's a fear of intimacy, a mistrustfulness, afraid of being revealed, right? That idea that if you really knew me, you'd run screaming from the room. And they pick fights in order to create distance. Infidelity can also be a means of acting out anger, or sabotaging the need for intimacy. They foster chaos, they leave puzzles incomplete and jobs undone in order just to keep everything just in that that state of ambiguity and chaotic place. There's an intentional inefficiency. I remember one comedian saying, I've seen, (laughs) I've seen the boss's job and I don't want it. He was talking about his wife, of course. Yeah. I've seen the boss's job. I don't want it. But to pretend that you just can't do something, pretend that it's just not possible for you to do it, also keeps you in control of things. Making excuses, losing things creates reasons for not fulfilling promises. Lying, withholding information to hold on to power. Obstructionism, procrastination. A person maybe won't settle on deadlines, work slowly. Deadlines, on the other hand, maybe just don't exist for this person. They avoid responsibility. Uh, there's a, a couple that I've been, not the couple, but one half of a couple that I've been counseling through a very nasty divorce. And she can't get the husband to give her any parameters. No bottom line, no numbers, no nothing. And she's constantly feeding information, but he won't feed anything back. Classic passive aggressiveness. Retaining control by not revealing anything. Resentment, of course. Resist suggestions from others. Sarcasm, stubbornness, sullenness. All these are traits of the victim. Traits of victim mentality. And though... That's pretty hardcore, and that can be an actual passive-aggressive personality disorder. But we all practice passive-aggressiveness at one time or another. You know we do. You see yourself in that list. I see myself in that list. We've all done it, and we do it to different degrees and variations and all that to the extent that we are feeling this choicelessness that there is some sort of cosmic accident that is happening to us that we can't fix in any way. We're going to resort to this type of activity just to feel like we have a little bit of control that is retained. And when it gets into religious areas, it also is there as well. You have probably experienced some of these in your church relationships and in the church as an institution itself. If we have no choice, if we really have no choice, if we really are a victim, then we also have no responsibility. And others are to blame. And there is no possibility of change. But to hang on to that as a way of life, you can see how that is the glass ceiling that keeps us just as surely out of kingdom as unforgiveness does. And the two are absolutely related. A victim has no choice but to be saved, the victim must be saved because the victim can't choose a direction for himself or herself. The victim is innocent of all charges, right? But do you think that's a good thing? To be innocent? It's, innocence is overrated at best, but it becomes another glass ceiling if you really think about it. We weren't meant to be innocent, How's that sound to you? We were not created to be innocent. We were not created to stay innocent. I suppose we were created innocent as small children, but we certainly weren't created to stay there. You know, the story of the garden is, is difficult for us because in the way that it's phrased, it's as if Adam and Eve had enacted an act of rebellion That's the way that it's stated there. God said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course they do. And then all these bad things follow. But the truth of the matter is, is that until we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we aren't fully human. It's our ability to choose. It's our ability to reason. It's our ability to understand the difference between good and evil. That makes us human. That makes us created in God's image. Without the ability to choose, we can't choose to love as the Father loves. It's impossible because the love must be a free choice. So, of course, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They weren't meant to stay completely innocent, not knowing that they were naked, able to simply walk with God in the cool of the evening because they had no choice to do or be anything else. This is the situation we find ourselves in. We're not meant to stay innocent, but we are made to be able to reason, to choose, to choose love, to actually choose love, to get our uniforms dirty, to get all pruny and wrinkly at the end of life and then give our parking space to somebody else. That's the human condition. That's what we are here to do. We're here to fail. We're here to get our hearts broken. We're here to take the hero's journey that always starts with a wounding, always starts with a deep sense of loss that kicks us into the next circuit, that teaches us more and more about what it means to be human here, a son or a daughter of God. That's the human condition. Jesus is showing us a non-passive way of righteousness, a non-passive way of entering into a kingdom which is absolutely active. You cannot be a kingdom citizen and be a victim at the same time. It is absolutely impossible. We read three passages over the last few weeks about this idea of righteousness. Remember he said the Jews had their, their measure of righteousness was in almsgiving, giving charity to the poor in prayer, and in fasting. And in those three ways, they measured the righteousness of each other. And so when Jesus is taking each of these areas and turning them around from passive to active and showing us this non-passive way of righteousness. So if you take a look at Matthew 6.2, this is about giving, about giving charity to the poor. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. So what are the Pharisees doing? They're making a big show of their giving so that everybody knows that they're giving. And that gives them advantage in, in the people's minds. It moves them up on the social rung. It moves them up on the spiritual rung. It gives them a sense of reward. But what Jesus is doing is giving us, turning this around and trying to give us a non-passive-aggressive way to be able to move through these acts of righteousness. So almsgiving is not a passive-aggressive way to meet our own needs, which is basically how the Pharisees were using it. But how many of us use it that way ourselves, even, even unconsciously at times? Sometimes the sense of giving becomes a tax or it becomes an investment. We do it because it was instructed to us. We think it's a law that we have to give. And if not, we're going to get punished. Or we do it because if we do give, well, then, of course, you can't outgive God. And so in some ways, we're going to get back, maybe even more than we gave in the first place. So this idea of giving as a tax so that we don't get punished or an investment so that we do get rewarded, that's a passive-aggressive way of using charity. But Jesus is saying, no, if you turn that around, if you do this completely in secret, if you do this leading with your heart, then this is an, an active identification with another person. This is actually seeing their need in real time and responding to it automatically, because that's who you have become. It is allowing the your resources to flow to the other person. And it's indicative of a condition of the heart that has nothing to do with passive aggression and has nothing to do with meeting your own needs. It has to do with the sense of connection in the moment that allows this exchange this authentic human exchange to take place. Take a look at the next one about prayer, Matthew 6, 5. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full as well. What Jesus is saying is that this should not be a passive-aggressive way to manipulate our circumstances. To pray in the way that they were praying is to change our circumstances, to take control of the circumstances. But Jesus says, when you retreat into your prayer closet, when you move into that secret space with your Father, it becomes an active means of knowing God, of knowing God's presence, of becoming that sheep that knows the shepherd's voice and knows instinctively when to follow, when to go out, and when to come back because you have spent time with your God in a secret place, learning to not just (laughs) grin and bear your circumstances, but to actually be content in the circumstances in which you find yourself, to thrive in the circumstances in which you find yourself. Just like Paul, he learned to, to be content in all his circumstances. This is what prayer can actually take us to if we take it out of a passive-aggressive mindset. At Matthew 6.16, talking about fasting, Jesus said, "'Whenever you fast, don't put on a gloomy face "'as the hypocrites do, "'for they neglect their appearance "'so that they will be noticed by men "'when they are fasting.'" Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. The Pharisees would go so far as to put ashes on the top of their head and rub it into their cheeks so that they looked all sunken and, and gray, and then they could walk around being miserable. And everybody knew that they were fasting and what a holy person they are, right? <laughs> this is not it at all. Jesus says it's not supposed to be a passive, aggressive penance or amends for sin, right? Right? And it's not supposed to be a way of bargaining with God or a way of self-aggrandizing yourself. When we were kids, growing up Catholic, it was all about giving up something that we really loved, right? You gave up something in order to get God's favor, in order to get favor for whatever sins that you thought that you had committed. That's a passive-aggressive exchange. But Jesus is saying, turn that around. Make it an active means of being able to focus your mind and your body on this present moment. Boy, nothing focuses you like hunger. You feel that hunger, it's grounding you in your body. It's grounding you in the moment. And all these, you know, fanciful flights of of our intellect, boy, you put some hunger on top of that, it comes right back down to the stomach, doesn't it? Fasting can do that. It can focus us, focus us here on the present moment, on God's presence in the moment. You know, if we sincerely just practice presence alone, that would be 90% of the spiritual journey right there. Just being present, just focusing. Fasting, when it's turned around in an active way, can do that, can bring us back to this moment. Now, Jesus' way is laying down this role and this life of the victim that moves us into passive and passive-aggressive tendencies and to pick up the role of the actual son or the daughter of the father. To be the son of the, of the father, to be the daughter of the father, is to actually be like God's avatar here on earth, to carry the qualities, to carry the authority of to be the emissary of the Father. If we have taken on his attributes, that's what Jesus is saying. This way of mine that will take you to the truth that will make you free is a way of picking up the attributes of the Father so that we literally are God's children, sons and daughters, emissaries of what God looks like in human form. That's this active way that Jesus is talking about to pick up that role, to pick up that life, to realize that we have the choice to actually partner with God. Now, does that still sound arrogant to some, to assume that we can partner with God? I mean, that's a real uneven partnership, right? But it is also baked into the actual words that Jesus and the Bible use to describe kingdom. There are two words for kingdom in Hebrew. One is malkutha. That's the one that Jesus uses. When he talks about the kingdom of heaven, whether it's in Aramaic or Hebrew, malkutha Dashmaya means the kingdom of heaven. But there's another word for kingdom, Mamlacha. Mamlacha is used for those kingdoms that didn't line up to God's reign, the way that God reigns and rules. Remember Saul, the first king that was appointed in the Israelites? His kingdom was described as Mamlecha. It was never a kingdom that was sanctioned by God. David's kingdom was malkutha. All of the kingdoms of the Gentiles were labeled Mamlecha. When Jesus talks about you know what the Gentiles do? They lord it over every each other and, and they, they run each other ragged? You're not supposed to do that. That's Mamlacha. A kingdom that is run by dictatorial force. You have a king who is an autocrat who tells everyone what to do. And on pain of death, they just do it. They're like mind-numbed robots that just have to go through life doing exactly what the king tells them to do. That's Mamlacha. That's one way dictatorial rule. Malkutha is two-way rule, where literally the people, the subjects, become the hands and feet of the king. They are acting out everything that the king desires so that the king doesn't even really have to set down rules at all. They resonate with the king. They become part of the king's reign. The way and the principles by which the king reigns become so ingrained in the people that they are working together in concert. That's Mom. That's Malkuta. The kingdom of heaven is exactly that. King and people, one in spirit, one in desire, one in will, and deepest purpose, so that there's no daylight between. This is what partnership with God looks like. We don't have to assume any arrogance or that we're trying to place ourselves on God's level. It is resonating with, it is mirroring with, it is letting our heart become, the Father's will. Tzemyonah, desire, delight, and deepest purpose. That's how partners work. And so still, in all humility, and all sense of dependence, that part of us that is created in God's image, the part of us that can choose, is recalling everything as a gift anyway. Everything that we're partnering with God on has been a gift to us, a free gift. All we have to do is choose it. Choose to live it. Choose to love as God loves. That makes us partners. That puts us in an active role. Never passive, never victimized by God or God's rule in our lives, but partnering with it. As Jesus said, you know, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, let our wills rem- merge Become one again, because my fear has taken it out. Bring it back. And from here, he moves into this idea of storing up treasure. Take a look at Matthew 6, starting at verse 19, 19 and 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is what Jesus' way is all about. This is what he's talking about. Right here in this passage, he's summing up the teaching from the past few stanzas and, and passages within Matthew 6. He's also introducing what is going to follow. He's going to talk about the eye being the lamp of the body. He's going to talk about that no one can serve two masters. So you can see how this storing up treasures in heaven is a bridge between those two. The Aramaic word he uses there is simta literally means treasure or store. So wherever you see treasure or store, it's the same word. In the East, especially the ancient East, treasure, wealth, personal wealth, was measured in several areas. First, fine clothing. Food stores, if you had food stored up, you were wealthy, whether it was grain or wine or oil or livestock. Precious metals and jewels were another way. And finally, land, if you held land. So in those four areas, right? Clothing, food, precious metals and jewels, land. This is a way that the ancient East measured the wealth of a person. And so Jesus is using that understanding of how wealth was measured. And so those fine silks of so those fine clothes that came along the Silk Road from the Far East into the Middle East were prone to moths. Moths love that stuff. I suppose it's only fair. They created it, right? They can eat it back again if they want to. But the fine silks are prone to moth. And the the, the word there used that is uh, translated usually as rust, ekal in Aramaic, literally means to eat or to consume or to devour. But think about what rust does. It devours the metal, right? Mildew devours fabric. Uh, rotting grain is devoured. Vermin devour the grain. And so you can see that this this really colorful word that means to consume, to eat, or devour, is used to say that all of these forms of wealth that you so value in your culture and in your personality are just going to be eaten up. They're going to be consumed if that's the only thing that your heart is after. And thieves can break in. You know, most of the buildings at the time were made of sun-hardened clay, not too difficult to chip through. Thieves could literally just break through a wall and break into a storage area and pull everything out. So they had a little bit different connotation in it in terms of thieves breaking in. And then this idea of heart, Lebah in Aramaic, is a center to, to the Semitic mind, was the center of a person's courage, a center of their intelligence, a center of their feeling, their passion. Basically all of the uh, traveling companions of Dorothy, right? Scarecrow, Tin Man, Lion, same thing. Courage, intelligence, passion, compassion. The heart is the center of all of that. It could be considered the breast or the mind, right? The pith, the marrow, the center, the best part of anything. We use heart the same way. Heart's a palm, right? You know, let's get to the heart of the matter. Same idea. This is the heart of our community. We use heart in the same way. But this is the sense in which it's being used here. And so this idea of the treasure, the store, the simta, which is also the mammon of a person or the mamona, which mamona is the name of the Canaanite goddess of avarice and greed. But it was used to mean wealth in the sense of all of this that we're talking about. But it's more than just owning it. It is that which we pile up in our life that comes to define us, is the idea of mamona. In other words, what does our heart identify with? That is the mammon in your life. And Jesus is saying, if this is, if your heart is identified with these material wealth and blessings, then it's going to be consumed. It's not going to have a lasting effect. But if you can move your heart to treasure and to store things in heaven, then everything starts to change at that point. The heart is going to follow its treasure. The heart is going to follow its mammon, what it really identifies with. And so where does the action of our heart lead? And now, we all have material needs. That's not the point. But Jesus is trying to get us to focus and define our heart in the spirit and in heaven because With the heart identified with spiritual wealth, if that's what we can do, if our heart really values spiritual wealth, then our acquisition of physical wealth is going to be healthy. It's going to be balanced. It's going to be right. And the tail is not going to be wagging the dog as it so often does otherwise. And so this is the idea here. Now, we Westerners need to be careful here because when we think of putting our treasures in heaven, we're thinking of heaven of the next life which can put us back into a passive stance here in this life. If everything is about the next life that we value, then basically we're just biding time until we die and get there. And that puts us back into passivity. Maybe not passive aggression, but passivity. And this is what Jesus is trying to get us away from. It's not about waiting for anything. It's about picking up what is right here and right now. And so this focus on next life can, something, can do that to us. But if you remember what heaven meant to the original Jews here, Shemaiah, heaven, it was a euphemism for the name of God. They would say Shemaiah instead of saying God because they weren't allowed to pronounce God's name because that could possibly be taking it in vain. But Allah, God, means unity, oneness, multiple things functioning as one right here, right now. Heaven to the Jew was not about the next life. It was about unity and connection, about God's presence right here and right now. And so we humans, as we live between heaven and earth, between Shemaiah and Adah, it's an active balancing act that we're trying to pull off here. It's energetic and it's immediate, but it's bringing the two together. The oneness and the unity superimposed on the diversity and the individual form and function that we see our, in our lives every single day. That aloneness that we feel superimposed with the sense that everything really is connected, that everything belongs, and that this whole thing is never passive. We're not sitting back and waiting. It requires all of us. Every bit of our presence, every moment brought to the moment in order to connect at this level, to balance heaven and earth, to feel the sense of connection overlaid on everything that seems so split apart, so divided up into small pieces. And this brings us full circle back to present presence. Always Jesus is speaking in the context of kingdom, and kingdom is always in the context of now. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. This is why victimhood is just as devastating to kingdom as unforgiveness, antithetical to the idea of kingdom itself. Here's a couple of things you can put on your fridge. A victim is never present a victim is never present. A victim is always reliving the past, the past trauma, or imagining future relief, but they're never here, and they're never now. A victim is never present. A victim lives in unforgiveness, always sees no choice in the present. They are not responsible for the situation they find themselves in, and no change is possible So they are always in an unfree position. They are always restricted by all of the circumstances around them by their own lights. This is what they believe. And so by definition, they live in unforgiveness because they live in bondage. And that is the antithesis to kingdom. And maybe one of the most useful bits here is a victim is always waiting. A victim is always waiting for something to happen, something to change, someone to come and save, something to happen. But a victim is always waiting and never arrives. Always waiting. And kingdom is all about arrival. The waiting is over. The kingdom is here. Mark 1.15, first thing Jesus says out of the box in the Gospel of Mark, the waiting is over. The kingdom is here. If you're waiting for something, you're not in kingdom. What are you waiting for? What is it that you cannot choose right now that can transform the way that you look at your life? Jesus said the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now. The kingdom is not out there somewhere that you can see by observation, but the kingdom is entos. The kingdom is legamen in Greek and Aramaic, which means within, among, in the midst of, moving dynamically from inside to outside. It's such a different prospect than what you think. It's not out there, it's in here, it's now. It's immediate, it's imminent, it's intimate. It's about arriving how are we supposed to know that we're not living like a victim? How can we look at ourselves and have some sense of where we are in this picture? Well, are you waiting for something? Are you waiting for God? Are you waiting for rapture? Are you waiting for your death? Are you waiting for heaven to make it all better? Are you waiting for a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a job? What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for something? And if you analyze the nature of your waiting, it keeps you uncomfortable. It keeps you out of the present moment. It keeps you from being able to be grateful for the things that you do have because all your focus is on the things that you don't. Are you waiting for something? Do you blame others for your circumstances? Do you blame God? for your lot in life? Do you feel that there's no choice present to you, that you really are a cosmic victim, that things are just happening to you, and there's really nothing you can do about it? Is there a creeping sense of despair in your life? Well, if any of those apply in any degree, Jesus has good news for you. (laughs) And the good news is there is no bad news that's the good news. God is love. There is nothing else God can be but love. There's nothing else God can be but forgiveness and healing and redemption and presence and all of that. God is those things. And God has really good news for all of us that He has already chosen for us, He has already chosen love for each one of us. He has already acted on our behalf and continues to act on our behalf. God withholds nothing ever. It's all here. It's all now. Since the beginning of time, it's been present and here for us. There is no prerequisite to this love. There's no prerequisite to this favor. There's no performance that we have to manage. We only have to treasure what God is offering and to desire it. And it will not be denied. We just let our hearts seek what it treasures. We let our hearts be what hearts are, the best part of ourselves, the center of intelligence and and compassion. And let it move toward, let it be active and move toward. And these things that God has promised us will be ours. They're ours now, but we don't know that yet. And it'll be there for us if we allow all of our presence to come to bear on this moment, all of our energy to come to bear on this moment, to stop waiting and simply act and pick up what is already ours and will never be denied. That's the good news to the victim. We are not victims. We are God's sons and daughters. All we have to do is start living as if that's true and everything changes. Let's pray. That's all we have to do, Father, is live as if this is true. And you know how hard that is. Sometimes with all evidence to the contrary, it is hard for us, Father, to be able to just Take those first risky steps and live as if we were sons and daughters of yours. But help us to do just that, Father. Help us to lean beyond what we can understand on our own. And pick up the power that is greater than ourselves. Just hitch our wagon to the power that's greater than ourselves. Each other, the communities we're in, the teachers that we trust, the friends that we trust, your spirit, Help us to see beyond the feeling of choicelessness that we have or powerlessness and realize that even in our powerlessness, we still can make the choice to grab on to you and to each other and end up someplace completely different that maybe we really didn't even know existed for us. But that's it, to take those first tentative steps, to break beyond the sense of risk, and move into the connection that will show us the truth that will make us free. Thank you, Father, for everything that you do for us, for having already acted and chosen for us. That's why we say we can only love in return, because you loved us first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.